Oh, wait. Hold on. Boyfriend's bringing me truly. <laughs> this episode brought to you by... episode of My Favorite Feminist. My name is Megan, and I'm here with my co-host, Milena. Hey, guys. You're listening to the bi-weekly podcast that explores feminist figures in the arts and sciences. I'm an artist down here in Virginia, where I am recording on traditional Powhatan land. And I'm your friendly neighborhood science gremlin, coming to you from traditional Lenape land in Philadelphia. Today, we're going to learn about a Japanese-American artist best known for a graphic novel, and a woman physicist with many, many firsts under her belt. Okay, that's what we're here for. I'm so ready for this. I'm so ready to tell you about her. She was a boss. Are we going to get into, like, theoretical physics this time? Please say no. Oh, your face. Oh, I'm sorry, guys. Oh, we're in this together. We really are. It's okay. It'll be fun. Technically Newtonian physics, but I'm really just going to hit on a few theological things. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, we all know what that means. <sighs> well, this will be fun and entertaining. But before we get to that on my end, we're we're going through World War II again. Oh, God. What do you mean? <laughs> oh, God. God. The war. I'm okay. Does that come up on your end at all? No. No, not at all. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, that's no. something. We're we're missing we're missing World War Two on my end. By like several hundred years. Oh, okay. That's fun. We haven't really gone back in time recently. Or far back in time. Oh honey. Alright. Well, before we're going back to whatever century for you. I am staying solidly in the 20th century, and it might sound a little familiar because last episode I covered another Japanese-American artist who lived at roughly the same time, and that was sculptor Ruth Asawa, who did really amazing, like, woven hanging wire sculptures that are pretty fun. Stunning. Oh my god, please look them up. They're Yeah, they're really fun. But today I'm doing Japanese-American Mene Okubo painter and illustrator who is best known for her graphic novel chronicling her experience in a World War II internment camp. Oh, shit. It's it's not as depressing as you might expect it to be. Uh, Okay. We're we're exploring that a lot today. And so that particular graphic novel is Citizen 13660. Oh, no. Just... Rolls right off the tongue. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, that's already really depressing. You know what? It's it's not as depressing as you think it might be, right? Because she actually had a good bit of humor about her, which is nice. Okay. Even though it is a bit of a heavy subject and it's not the brightest chapter of American history, Mine weirdly makes it fun to learn about because her graphic novel that she created is really accessible, which is nice about it. Oh, yeah? Yeah, and it's actually made it a bit of a classic in terms of literature in regards to Japanese-American internment. Okay. I think it just, like, the visuals might it make it 
easily accessible or like you understand it more having that in front of you rather than like a like stuffy novel yeah when essentially you're looking at cartoons exactly yeah the bulk of the narrative is driven by cartoons so that's what we got today that is what she's best known for so we are heading all the way back to 1912 so not too far away there's not yeah in the grand scheme of things really what is give or take up yeah a hundred years so we're going back to 1912, where Mine was born. She's the middle child of seven children. <clears throat> yes. Why? Yeah. I know. So it's a big family. Her parents came over from Japan, and they live in Riverside, California, which Riverside, it's a good-sized city now, but back then it was still essentially farmland. Okay. So Mine, she had really fond memories growing up in this rural setting, like among the orange groves. And was her family, like trying to be farmers like Ruth's family was? Well, with American discrimination policies, they could not actually become citizens. Oh, and they couldn't own right. land or anything. So, like, her father was a scholar, mm. but he supported the family working as a gardener here in the U.S. Got it. Yeah. And her mother actually was an honors graduate at a Tokyo art school. They had both come over, her parents, for... The 1904 St. Louis World Fair, and her mother was going to be representing the university that she had attended for her calligraphy skills and showing that off. Why did they leave Japan? Well, to come to the World Fair in 1904. Oh, and then it just stayed there? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, because, I mean, world, world world fairs at the time, I mean, they were how countries and companies, like, showed off, like, the hottest shit of the day. Right, right, right. Like, the Chicago World Fair. Or the Philadelphia one. Yeah. yeah. Tens of thousands of people would come from all over the world to attend these events that would run for months at a time. But they never went back home? No, they, they came over and they stayed. And I don't know if they met at the World Fair, but, you know, decided to start a family. Oh, okay. It's kind of funny. So... The World Fair they went to, they could have potentially come across another artist that we've covered previously, all the way back in episode 23, Maria Martinez. Oh. She was a ceramic artist oh. who, she did pottery demonstrations at that same 1904 World Fair and also technically was part of a human zoo, but that is straying a little bit. So I just, I just thought that was a fun little crossover. Oh, you know. I feel like world fairs were, like, where people got together, but also where people, like, got kidnapped and murdered often. Okay, yes. The Chicago one in the late 1800s, that's where we have the serial killer. I cannot think of his name, but he's arguably America's first serial killer that we know of with his murder. Castle of Horrors, whatever it was. Hotel. Hotel of Horrors. Yeah. Mm. Mm. That one's a bit of a doozy, and there are plenty of other podcasts that cover that subject matter, but... Right, right, that's not us, sorry. <laughs> no, <laughs> sorry guys, we're the boring ones. <laughs> no murder today. No, not this time. Nope. Okay, so in Mini's family, like, it's not surprising that creativity was really encouraged because of her mother's background. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So a few of her siblings, they went into the arts as well, which is pretty cool. Were they all, like, painters, graphic novelists? I'm not sure. So I know she had an older brother who was a painter and then a younger sister who was also an artist but also a gallery manager. That's okay. kind of all the details I've got on them. That's fair. There were seven of them. Yeah, so three out of seven. I mean, that's not bad. Yeah. I mean, there are some families, you have two kids and one's an artist, and you're like, parents are like, where did I go wrong? <laughs> you were supposed to be a doctor. That was definitely a conversation I had with my dad. Oh, yeah? 
it was it, it wasn't you were going to be a doctor but it definitely was i'm sorry you want to be a, a a set designer for theatrical arts like are you insane like that really pissed him off i mean that's good work no, he was not having it. He was like, you are not going to college for that. But then he let me go to college for, like, photojournalism, so I'm not really sure. Well, you should have thrown in, yeah, well, Megan's going to college for ceramics, so there. Like, that would have helped put things in perspective. <laughs> Suddenly, set design would not have looked as bad. Be like, oh, well, now that you say that, that's just mud. That's just clay, right? That's just the spinning thing? The Yeah. <laughs> It was it was one of those moments for sure. I'm like, okay, well, that dream was yeah. dead. <laughs> so Mine, she she comes from a creative family, which is really awesome when that is supported and fostered. But Mine did see that raising a family like took a toll on her mother's creativity. Mm. Saying about it, quote, I knew I was never going to get married. Look at my poor mother. Her life was ruined working so hard for the children. Oh, my God. She never had time to do anything. She stopped painting. I wasn't going to wash anyone's socks or cook their dinners. Forget it. Yeah. 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 And, like, Mine, she stuck to that. Like, she never married, and she focused on her creative practice, like, her entire life. Yes. Like, up until death. Yes. Which, I mean, I, I get. At the same time... Like, you can still be a mother and have a family and be an artist. Yeah. And I know that's something that that's still a bit of a taboo these days, which should not be the case. No. But, you know, if that's how someone wants to go, you know, go for it. If you want to have a few children, go for it. Whatever makes you happy. You can still be an artist. Yeah, you do you, boo. Yeah, I, I'm going to get into how um, pointless life is later. So um, just do what makes you happy as long as it doesn't harm people around you, you know? From her early teens to her early 20s, Mine had a pretty solid arts education. Like, so she attended the Riverside Community College for mm-hmm. arts. Yeah. She later, she earned a scholarship that allowed her to transfer to UC Berkeley, so the University of California at Berkeley. Mm-hmm. And there she earned her bachelor's when she was 23 in 1935. Mm-hmm. And then a year later, also graduated with her master's degree at 24. God, what are we doing with our lives? Hosting an informational feminist history podcast okay we're doing okay we're doing okay oh okay sorry let me what am, what am i doing with my life i know we're we're doing just fine during college and a little afterwards i'm not exactly sure what type of art she's creating the records are fairly spotty but i do know that after college mine is working with the federal arts project and that was created during the Depression era to basically employ, like, a crap ton of artists. Mm. So she, along with hundreds of other artists around the nation, they're employed by the Works Progress Administration, which is what's putting on the Federal Arts Project. And they're essentially painting murals. Okay. So that's what Mine is up to up until 1938, when at 26, she receives a fellowship from the University of California to just, like, travel across Europe. What? Yeah. I mean, that's, like, a huge deal. Essentially, the university was like, hey, Mine, like, we like your art. Keep up the good work. Here's 11 grand for you to travel. Have fun. No strings attached. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, Mine is all like, uh, yes, please. Thank you. And she takes off for Europe, which is awesome because, like, some other people we've covered, Adelaide Johnson, she didn't even have to fall down an elevator shaft to get the money. (laughs) She was just like, all right, cool. I'll take this grant. Go hang out in Amsterdam. Yeah, I don't know exactly where she was able to go, but I know she hit up France and Switzerland. She was in Denmark for a bit. 
but she takes the money and she's traveling by herself across Europe for 18 months, just studying art and hitting up like all the big classical art museums that have been there for, you know, like hundreds of years. I just, that's insane. That does not compute. That's, I know, it sounds And being like, like in your mid 20s doing that? A woman of Asian descent just running around. Yeah, and to have the backing of like a big university giving you the money and that support, like Mm. it, it is. So cool. I mean, just for a woman artist in general to have that is a big deal. But then, like you said, like, you know, the racial aspects of it when in this country we have so much racist baggage going on. It's the never ending storm. (sighs) I know. I know. But for Mine, while she's there traveling and learning, things are going really great until they're not. Oh, no. Yeah. So while Mine is, like, studying art and visiting art museums, Hitler is literally planning to take over the world. So, like, imagine her in this big, fancy, like, European art gallery, like, looking at some, like, you know, a painting by, like, Michelangelo. Meanwhile, like, Hitler's in fucking Germany, like, trying to plan how to invade Poland, which he does. And so suddenly she's like, shit, I got to get the fuck out of here. Yeah, you do. GTFO. Yes. Yes, super hard. So she's able to land one of the last steamboats leaving France to get back to the United States after World War II broke out in Europe in 1939. Mm. Yeah. So back in the States, I mean, she's able to settle in the San Francisco area of California. Mm-hmm. And she picks up work again, you know, working for the Works Progress Administration. She's, you know, painting murals. And for one project, Mine is working under the famed Mexican mural painter and husband of Frida Kahlo, Diego Rivera. Why? Why is he everywhere? I know. I was thinking about that. I was like, this is at least the fourth or fifth episode I've done where he has been like a fringe character. I hate him. In someone's narrative. I hate him so much. I know, and a little picture came up of him, and I was like, oh, you, what did Frida see in you? Exactly. Yeah, her parents did not want her to marry him. Okay, one, look at him. Two, he was 20 years older than her. Three, he was a communist. And they were like, and also, four, he's an atheist. Oh, oh, oh. You know, I have just, this is the first time I've ever seen Diego Rivera's face. It's not even like he's a sexy artist. And, I mean, that's not a qualification you need to have to be an artist. But he is not a lady killer by any means. Yeah, so surprisingly, this is like fourth or fifth time Diego Rivera has made an appearance on one of our episodes. Gross. So, I mean, but still, like, for me, Nate, like, that's pretty cool that she's working with him. Because, you know, during that time, like, he was a really big name. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but it it really wasn't long before World War II caught up with America, you know, as much as we tried to stay out of it. And that happened. We officially entered the war after the December 7th, 1941 attack on Pearl Harbor. So, like, like we covered a tad last episode, for Japanese Americans living on the West Coast, basically everything changed for them after Pearl Harbor and specifically after President Roosevelt came out with this executive order 9066. So he he signed that into law February of 1942, and it basically declared the West Coast a military zone, and for persons deemed a threat living within those zones, they could be and would be forcibly placed in relocation centers for national security reasons. Of course. Yeah. Now, the order didn't explicitly say persons of Japanese descent, Mm -hmm. but... 
that was how it was used for citizens and non-citizens alike. And that was over 120,000 in total. They were just like, eh, they're Japanese. They're clearly, I don't know, like, I still don't understand that. Like, how can he just be like, these kind of people, they're dangerous? Well, because they look similar to the enemy. They look like the enemy. The enemy. They could be out to destroy us. The enemy. I mean, think of it. Because of the racist policies, even if people had immigrated over years prior, decades prior to that incident, as a nation, like, we still were actively denying them citizenship. So we already had this othering going on and be like, no, 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 you guys can't be citizens. It was just so easy for him to make that little signature happen and put away all the unwanted, which is just unreal. I don't get it. Yeah. (laughs) Or one reason why I'm covering Meenate is that her history and the history of this American racism is feeding into the type of racism that we're seeing today. I mean, mm-hmm. it's all it's a very long history of this that we have. Yeah. I thought, you know, well, this doesn't directly relate to kind of the type of, you know, hate attacks that we're seeing today. Like, it's the history of it. Yeah. Shitty, but informative. With that 1942 signing, Meenate's mother, she had already passed away. She had become ill and she had died in 1940. No idea from what, but like, understandably, after Mini's mother passed away, like, her father became like even more involved in their local okay. community, right? Because, like, the kids are fairly much grown up at that point, and you know, it's, that's normal to handle grief, you know, to surround yourself right. with a network of support, right? Well, like we learned last episode, the United States government started their roundup of those of Japanese descent by targeting the men who were active in community groups. So Mini's father was arrested by the FBI and sent to a top security prison camp. Mm, Sounds familiar. I know. I know. He was the first. And then soon after, the rest of the family, they were forced into relocation centers, you know, getting separated in the Mm. process. And... Out of the seven siblings, it was just Mine and a younger brother who ended up together at an internment camp in Utah. Jesus. Out of all of them, it's just him and her? I mean, to be fair, you know, they are all young adults at that point, so they're not necessarily living together in the same area, but still, they, they weren't even all together in a camp. Oh. They were, like, literally scattered across the country. Oh, my God. And in this relocation process, like, Japanese-American families typically lost everything but what they were able to carry with them. So, businesses, homes, like, everything. Were they able to use a fucking suitcase or were they forced to use a duffel bag? Fucking dicks. So, for these camps, like, it's not important for this episode if you've listened to last episode of Ruth Asawa. But it's interesting to note how things were different for artist Ruth Asawa, who was a teen while she was forced into an internment camp, and Mine. So Ruth experienced it. She was able to get out of the camp for college, and then she went about her life afterwards. Oh, she just, like, did her thing? Yeah, you know, she went on, she, you know, pursued art and developed her career. And But for Mine, like, being in the camp, she made it her personal responsibility to document everything. I mean, yeah, what else was she going to do? So the photojournalist in you will appreciate this. So cameras were forbidden. Mm. So instead, it was a given to see Mine around the camp with a clipboard in hand, like ready to sketch anything and everything. Yeah. And so acting as she put it, quote, observer and reporter to, you know, capture, as she put it, what happens to people when reduced to one status and condition. A woman after my own heart. So here, like that, that one status condition is like the forced Americanized assimilation of Japanese Mm. Americans. Jesus. So it's impressive. So in total, Mine did over a thousand drawings during her time at the central Utah relocation camp. 
And in addition to the drawings that she was doing, Mina was also, she was teaching art to kids. She was working on the camp's newspaper. And she was also the art editor for, like, a literary magazine that was produced at the camp. Oh, shit. Yeah. So, I mean, the conditions weren't great. These people were busy. Yeah, but, like, life didn't stop at all. Like, things were crappy, yes, but, you know, everything else is still going on. So, Mine, you know, she's still pursuing her creative work. And prior to her first, her forced relocation, she had been a member of the San Francisco Art Association. Mm-hmm. And with her connection, she was able to get some artwork back to San Francisco and actually included in a show at the San Francisco Museum of Art. Damn. Yeah, like, even at an internment camp, like, she's nationally exhibiting her art. Oh, my God. What? Which is such a strange thing to think about. No, it's fine. I was under the impression that they couldn't leave the internment camp. Okay, they they couldn't. You could still mail things out and have things, like, mailed to you. So she actually was still receiving mail from her friends in Europe, and, like, one sentiment was essentially, you know... They were telling her, like, oh, you're so lucky there. Like, yeah, even though she's in an internment camp, you know, they were saying, like, our camps here are a little different. Yeah. So there's that. And there's a note in um in the graphic novel that she did, you know, all packages going in and out were inspected. And basically a lot of the things coming in were items ordered out of, like, the Sears catalog. Oh, God. So it's just, like, this amped up, like, you know, heightened security, really tense zone. I'm like, oh, my goodness. Let me go through this package. What is it going to be? You know, is it uh, a spy trying to inform the enemy of, like, military strategic positions? And you're like, no, I just wanted some new sheets for my bed. It's a toaster. Thanks. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) What? (laughs) Like, just these really mundane domestic items. (laughs) I don't, like, hey, bro, you're an asshole. Can I have a toaster back? Like, are we good? (laughs) So... Yeah, so things would still come in and out of the camps. It's just, for the most part, people really couldn't leave unless there was, you know, some special circumstances like employment or, like, education. Mm -hmm. So, Mina, she was actually able to get employment through this piece of art that she had included in the show in San Francisco. And through kind of a series of um, connections, she ended up with a job offer from Fortune magazine. Mm -hmm. The guys who do, like, the Fortune 500 companies. Fancy schmancy. Yeah, they... Also own Time magazine and Sports Illustrated. They own everything. I, I feel like as millennials, we're like, yeah, yeah, magazines, whatever. whatever. We don't do that anymore. I know, I know. But at the time, it was actually the first, like, multi-million like media company in the United mm-hmm. States. So it was a big deal. So they offered her, like, a job just for, like, one article that they were doing. And they wanted two illustrations to depict, as they put it, Japanese futility and ultimate defeat. This is in 1943. Wow. We are a fucked up country. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and we, we made sure that defeat happened when we bombed them in August of 1945. Yeah. yeah Hiroshima, Nagasaki. Yeah. And that left over 200,000 people oh, dead. you don't have to remind me. I know. As someone who you lived in Japan and you've been to Holocaust or Hiroshima. Yeah. yeah. Nuclear Remembrance Museums. It's not great. <laughs> but... Through this new connection with Forbes, Mine, she was granted permission to leave the camp in order to relocate to New York City to work for them. Yeah, so at the age of 32 in 1944, like, before the war is officially over, Mine, she's in New York City, she's working as a commercial illustrator, 
she's doing work for Fortune and, you know, other publications like the New York Times for children's books and even anatomy and physiology textbooks, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's cool. And you're like, all right, yeah, like, that sounds very straightforward. Like, you know, she's an artist. She works as an illustrator. In order for Mina to even leave the camp, like, she needed to pass a loyalty test. What? What? <laughs> what? what did this loyalty test consist of? They had, like, a secret file on people. Do you? Stand every time you hear the Star Spangled Banner. I just do you. (laughs) (laughs) The patriotic intensity in your eyes right now, Miletta. I just fucking can't. Um. So after the attacks on 9/11, as a kid at my school, every morning after the Pledge of Allegiance, we all had to stand as the school played. A patriotic American song. Uh, yeah. Country songs. They would just play country yeah. songs. And we had to stand there yeah. for about three minutes or so, listen to Toby Keith. Trash. Trash is what it is. In in hindsight now, I'm like, that was probably a Republican-leaning county. I went probably. <laughs> but yeah, she, she needed to pass a loyalty test. And people who knew Mine, they were essentially asked if she was American enough. She was. She's an American. She was fucking born in America. She's an American. What does that even mean? Like, what? Aside from her... Oh, God. I I would love to see that, like... I would love to see their measuring stick. I know, yeah, the the qualifications. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, obviously, she passed because they let her out. And I know one of her old Berkeley professors was asked. And he went on record saying about her that she was, quote... Thoroughly American in thought and training and loyal to American ideals. Oh, okay. Yeah, like you had to have other people vouch for you. Fucking hell. So for 10 years, you know, Mine, she's, she's got steady work doing these commercial illustrations. But in the meanwhile, she compiled these hundreds of sketches that she had done while in Utah. And a year after the war is over, Mine publishes her autobiographical graphic novel, Citizen 13660. Okay. Which is all about her experience of being forced into an internment camp. I need to see it. I need to read it. Yeah, you can. There are places online to read it for free, which we'll link to in our show notes. And it's kind of weird because, like, even after the war was over, the government department that oversaw the relocation centers, the War Relocation Authority, they still kept an eye on Mine. Okay. And that's, that's because of this published work. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. They were, like, staring at her. What are you feeding people? I know. Exactly. And this kind of didn't go the way that I expected. So, you know, while the camps were being run and after, like, the American government was very image conscious. They wanted to promote that internment of the Japanese Americans. It was a democratic, patriotic duty of wartime, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. That's, like, fucked up, but... When they caught wind that Mine was publishing about her experience, oddly, the men in charge of the relocation authority were like, that is perfect, great, that is exactly what we want. What? I know, right? Okay, so from their point of view, as historian Mei Nagai wrote in her book, Impossible Subjects, Illegal Aliens, and the Making of Modern Mm -hmm. America, the war provided, quote, an opportunity to turn a unfortunate instance of war into positive social good. <laughs> okay. We just <laughs> threw everybody who looked Asian into a camp. I, yes. But it was positive. Yeah. And with the relocation centers acting as, okay, get this. So 
From the U.S. government's perspective, these relocation centers acted as, quote, benevolent, benevolent, how do you say that word? Benevolent? Benevolent. A simulation, (laughs) because I can't say that word, envisioning them as planned communities and Americanization project. Obviously with a homeowner's association and a pool. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that would be the assimilation of Japanese Americans through democratic self-governance, school, work, and other rehabilitative activities. Yeah, so basically the white guys were like, great, cool, we can assimilate the fuck out of these non-white people. And so like Meany's publication, they saw it as proof that someone who had lived in the camps that what they were doing was just that. They were making these people more American. They were already American. I mean, it was a roundup of citizens and non-citizens, but to them, it was proof of like, no, 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 we're not doing anything bad. You know, look, we on Arbor Day, we planted all these trees. They're learning about Arbor Day. Okay. I shoot you not. That's part of it. That is part okay. of it. It's notable because it was the first work published about these relocation centers from the perspective of a first-generation Japanese-American person. So in her writings and illustrations, Mini's like, she's not setting out to serve, like, these, this propaganda aim of the American government. But instead, she's presenting, like, in a straightforward manner, like, what her day-to-day was like. Unlike the colorful, brushy artwork that Mini has had created while studying abroad and after... Mm-hmm. The work in Citizen 13660, it was done in black line work and ink. So each illustration is a snapshot of daily life in the camp. Like her mama's calligraphy. Oh, I hadn't thought about that as a connection. Yeah, Yeah, no, that's a good point because she really does distill every scene down to just enough of what you need to know what's going on. So there's not a lot of embellishment with it. There's a little bit of cross-hatching, but she captures the features and like, she presents herself in every scene. You know, she's like the guide through this. But yeah, that's a really good point that I hadn't What's thought about. What's the name of it again? Prisoner 6? Citizen 13660. The drawings are cartoony, you know, but they're to the point in terms of what's happening. Mm. That might feature anything from, you know, Mina being stared at because she was the only person of color on a right. bus to the open communal bathrooms in the camp. Mm. Yeah, apparently someone thought it was a good idea to only put toilet dividers in the women's mm-hmm. bathroom every, like, second toilet. Really? So you could poop with someone in your own little couple toilet setting. You and I, we could poop together. We could. We could. I just, I mean, later on, they put in individual dividers, but, like, they only literally divided, like, every other toilet. And you're like, why would you do why? that? Why? What's the point? Why? why? What are you doing? Well, also, why the fuck are we here? Why are we? Why also, is this a thing? Yeah. Why? Everything. Everything. Can we please go home? Thanks. Yeah. Oh, wait. No, never mind. You took my home from me. I literally have nothing to go back to. Fuck you. (laughs) Oh, no. Sorry. I just think in that situation, I would have been a little fucking salty. It's very interesting that both of the women that you've covered, though, like, they made, like, they either, like, pulled themselves out of the ashes and moved forward, or they both did that. But they were either, like... It's whatever, like, she, the um, Ruth Atsawa last week was just so positive about the whole experience, and then, like, this individual, she's she's created something. Yes. Yeah, and that's, I thought she would offer an interesting contrast, and again, even if you haven't listened to last episode, that doesn't right. matter, but, yeah, that's why I thought it'd be interesting to, to cover her yeah. today, because she definitely had a different approach to it, and it made me think of how... With COVID going on right now, it's just, it's been such, like, a traumatic year for people on so many different levels this past, like, 12, 14 months. 
that, you know, there's going to be artists that come out of it that was like, yeah, that was a really fucked up time. Another ones who make artwork about what happened during this period that we're living through exactly. right now. And so as I was reading about Mine, like I was thinking about that, you know, with my own studio practice, like how to see the differences just with COVID and racial unrest, what, yeah, what may or may not manifest within my own creative exactly. practice. Right. So, so I thought it'd be kind of an interesting connection on that level. So, yeah. And she wasn't necessarily bitter about things and resentful. She just but wanted with to this, show people what's up. Yeah. And, you know, she said about it later. Like, essentially, she's like, I want to share this. I want people to know what happened because there was a part of me that was like, this could happen again. I don't want it to, but it could. Yeah. And, like, it's it's easy to step in Tamini's shoes, like, throughout her graphic novel because she keeps a neutral tone. Like, she shares with people, like, what was happening rather than necessarily, like, how she was feeling. Yeah. Yeah. And so that observational component you know, really makes it easy for someone to, um, you know, digest the content that she's depicting. Yeah. And so that I feel like she makes it accessible to learn what it was like for her to go through this and for her being like her number was like 13660. She was citizen 13660. Oh my gosh. Um, so this book, it is Mini's best known creative work. And it pretty much all the academic writing about Mine is about this piece, mm-hmm. which I mean, it's not too surprising because it, it really was a groundbreak- groundbreaking account. And Mene did present this book as evidence when she gave testimony in 1983 to the U.S. Commission on Wartime Relocation and Internment of Civilians. Oh, wow. Which rolls right off the tongue. Straight yeah, off. Yeah, it was it. a congressional <laughs> It was a congressional hearing, and that led to the 1988 formal apology by the United States government. So essentially Reagan was like, I'm sorry. Oops. Our bad, once again, us white men. <laughs> Don't worry, it'll trickle down. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> so pretty much everyone talks about this work and then it's like, oh, yeah, Mina also painted for 50 years afterwards. The end. What? Yeah, yeah. Like, if you could see my face right now, like, I'm kind of going to do that because there's Nothing. not that much biographical attention everything else on Mine, yeah like post-world war ii oh my god so as i mentioned like she stopped working as a commercial illustrator mm-hmm. in the 1950s because she wanted to focus on her art right and the artwork that she did is it's really fun like her paintings so they're brightly colored like oil paintings and there's like these bright colorful playful like blues and pinks and purples oh and you can tell like she was really into like the impressionist artists yeah. Because the way she, like, layers colors and she's very loose with things. and <laughs> This cat. <laughs> yeah, she she paints a lot of, like, like, a single woman in a scene. It could be herself, maybe. And then, like, you know, a cat or two. It's really, they're really fun. Like, her cartoony sensibility, like, comes into it as well with how she's, like, creating the forms. But I guess it kind of goes back to what you said about the calligraphy in that she gives you just enough information in her paintings to know what's happening. Exactly. But, you know, it's it's a little bit more fun and fluid with her colors and her brush jokes. And I, I think they're really wonderful. Like, even if I could have a print of one of those paintings hanging up in my house, I'd be a happy camper. <laughs> they're really cute. I love it. They're so much fun. And like I said, with all the academic writing on her... Everyone's like, yeah, 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 she did some paintings too. Mm. I'm like, excuse me, can we talk about this? Because these are really fun. Yeah, yeah. You just like skipped over like these amazing. 50 years. 50 years of her creative career. 
that is like a by the way. No, she she did have exhibitions and galleries and art museums. Like she had worked at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City, you know, the National Museum of Women of the Arts, mm-hmm. even back in San Francisco at the Museum of Fine Arts. Yeah. But Mina, she said she always felt separate from the art world. Saying about it, quote, if you're not following the current art trends, they think you've really cracked. You either pursue the art business, you know, show business systems as a promotion game, or you're on your own, which often means that your work doesn't sell. I don't follow any trend or anyone. My work was not accepted because you're judged by those who play the game, the critics and the dealers. Mm. Because my paintings are different and don't fit the ongoing trends, the museum and galleries don't know where to place me. Luckily, the people have saved me. The little people from whom I borrow money and the few collectors who help me with a rent. So by the time Mimi passed away, and that was in 2001 at the age of 88, like, and she kept creating up until then. Oh my God. She left behind over 2,000 pieces of artwork. 2,000 pieces? Yeah, like 2,000 paintings. So that's primarily what she did. And none of them have been in a gallery? No, they have. So during her lifetime, they were in shows. And then when she passed away, her collection was kind of separated into three big chunks. A good bit of it went back to her first college, what is now the Riverside Community College mm. back in California. Okay. And they have work on display. And there's another place that has work, a uh, permanent exhibition of her her pieces. Okay. But it's, it's very much a case that while she did have recognition during her lifetime, she had a little bit more after she died. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. I wish I was an artist. I'm like, can we not, please? Can we not? Please. <laughs> Please, please. I want a print of this cat. All I'm saying is that all of these artists, like, a lot of them have some great cat pieces. And, like, if I could just... Yeah, no, you're right. It's a thing. (laughs) Yeah, especially with the Mexican artists that we covered a few episodes. I could just get prints of these pieces and put them around my place. Okay, well, I think I know what I'm getting you for Christmas because there's a whole book dedicated to just cats in artwork. Yes. <laughs> so that's going to be a thing. It's going to be a thing. Yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> so <sighs> great. So, yeah, the last thing I just want to say about Mine is that generally her contributions are they're still framed more within her Japanese-American identity. Mm-hmm. I think, yes, she had a very unique life experience because of her heritage, I want wider appreciation for her and her art, like as a Japanese American and as an American. Yeah, they're fun. So there were two sources I did come across that seemed to have a like actually extensive like biographical information. Mm-hmm. And they were both Asian driven, either like a book or an academic journal. Both had a paywall. And I love you guys, but I wasn't also willing to drop $100 between the two of them. Nope. So I know there is a little bit more information about her, but... It's the case where it is like a Japanese American, let's say, historian who's looking into her that has that information. Like it hasn't crossed over more into like wider appreciation outside of that community. Right. Oh god. And that's what I really want to see. More more love. Yeah, just more appreciation. Be like, you know, yeah, what she went through was significant as a Japanese American, but like also she's an American and she has really good modern art. I mean, like like you said, look at her cat paintings. Like those are really fun. <laughs> the black cat too (laughs) yeah so in terms of how her artwork is handled and then since current academic attention i'm always like "Eh, 
what level does racism have to play into this? Oh, I'm sure. It's, yeah, because it's, it's a thing. But, I mean, as a whole, that is Mine Okobu. So she was, she was fun to cover. And I, like I said, I wish I knew more about those 50 years that she was painting, but they're really fun works. You guys should check it out. And also read her graphic novel because that is really a classic piece of literature and does offer really good insight to, you know, what it was like living in an internment camp. So that's what I got for you today. Yeah, I feel like that part of our history has just kind of been wiped away. So for you and I, it's been a little bit since we've been in public school. Right. I don't specifically remember whether or not we learned about that or just if it was just like, and this happened to moving on. Yeah. Like it was, if, if it was said, I don't remember. Like it, it's definitely been erased for sure. Um, I think that's one thing that's really impactful about the Citizen 13660 is that it offers a firsthand account that, you know, is really great content for like a middle to high school age audience right. to understand what was going on. And as a kid, like that really does help you understand these historical moments. Mm-hmm. Instead of just staring in a stuffy ass textbook, like maybe go... We're going to read this today. Here's a here's a link to the electronic version. Read that over the next two weeks. Yeah. Humanizing it instead of like, oh, sh- is this going to be my AP test? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's all a lie. It's all a trap. I know. It's a little funny how suddenly all these colleges are like, oh, well, I guess we're not going to require the SATs this year. <laughs> really? <laughs> almost as if you could have been doing this the whole fucking time but okay all right cool cool (laughs) yeah no it's yeah if there's anything we've learned the last 14 months or so it's that a lot of things that people are like i'm sorry we just can't do that no we can do we can do we can do Yeah. Um, so, yeah so that is my fairly recent person from history covered today how how far back are we going in time for you? Is it is it the 1500s? 1500s. Kind of. 16? Kind of. 15th century? Kind of. Okay. We're going to the 1700s. Okay. All right. I was only off by about 200 years. Then. I mean, the reason I say it, we're... You'll see. You'll see. You'll see. You'll see. You'll see. So, yeah. We're going to go back to 1711, specifically October 29th. In Bologna, Italy, because I cannot say it the way it's supposed to be said. That's fine. You know, you just say it confident enough and just keep rolling past it and never say it ever again. Bologna. Bologna. <laughs> <laughs> I just imagine the way I'm cringing is how you cringe when I try to speak Spanish. Yes. <laughs> Lo siento. <laughs> oh, God. Is it Bolo- Bologna? <laughs> Bologna. It's Italy, guys. 17th century Italy. I about to say, like, you could just be like, we're going to the central region of Italy in the early 18th century. I mean, it's such a big city. You can't really not say it. Okay, here's my next question. What what region is that city in? Who the fuck are you talking to? That makes a difference. It makes a difference. Is it in southern Italy? Is it more like in the north region? Like it politically, because like Tuscany for a little big bit was like its own fucking country in Italy, pretty much. Yo, Italy is the size of a goddamn grasshopper. Okay, I'm just going to pull out the fact that like I'm at least probably one fourth Italian. That hurts my heart right now. Does it hurt your heart right now? It does. It does. Did you suddenly become Italian? 
mild upper lip <laughs> Italian mustache right now is sad. It's sad, Milena. All right. I did not have to be burdened with this Italian facial hair for you to not tell me what region of Italy this Italian city in which we both cannot pronounce is from or is located. We can't pronounce. We've never been to. It's okay. Jesus Christ, I hate you. It's on the top of the boot. Okay. In the smack dab in the middle of the boot, but on the top of it. The very tippy top. Like, well, no, not next to Switzerland. It's like... But like near like the the Alps. Do you know where Venice is? Yeah. Okay. Go left. Yes, the northern mountainous region of Italy. Okay. All right. This helps me. I don't know why or how, but okay. There are various different political areas of Italy... In the grasshopper boot? (laughs) In the tiny grasshopper boot. The boot for grasshoppers. That's... All right. So what happens on October 29th, 1711? (laughs) She gets born. Okay. Her dad's name is Giuseppe and her mother's name is Marie. And they are a Catholic family. That is not a surprise. Okay. Nope. (laughs) Dad was a lawyer, though. Okay. All right. Yeah. So, money, you know. Yes. Yeah. Which means she was educated. Specifically, her cousin, Father Lorenzo Stegani, right, Mm -hmm. actually taught her Latin, French, mathematics. And then the fucking family physician stepped in. The doctor. Was she an only child? I don't know. Okay. Because that that seems really unique that I I can easily see if they had a son, the son would get all that attention. But maybe if they only had a daughter, that's why she received like, it sounds like a fairly comprehensive education, especially in the early 18th century. Yeah. Oh, man. Oh, man. They they made sure she was educated for sure. But she was also kind of like a child prodigy. So. Oh, okay. I'm sure they like noticed how smart she was. Yeah. So. Physician steps in, who also, like, teaches at the university. Mm -hmm. Anatomy, natural history, logic, metaphysics, philosophy, chemistry, hydraulics, mechanics, algebra, geometry, ancient Greek, Latin, French, and Italian. (laughs) Okay. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. This was intense. There was a bit of a falling out between her and her family physician, the one who taught her the most of the, like, sciences when she was younger. Okay. Because they started at... They started at 13, but she started getting into, like, these Newtonian physics, and he was more of a Cartesian camp. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's essentially oil and water right there. (laughs) (laughs) What were they thinking? Guys, I have no fucking clue. We're getting into philosophy now, because these, like, a lot of scientists and physicians were also philosophers, and they... They kind of did things based off of, like, the Catholic Church and their faith. And, like, they were they were driven by God most of the time. I mean... That was basically... Yeah, yeah. when God is writing the checks, you want to toe the yeah, line. You want to do the thing, for sure. And it, these philosophies were kind of a bit of a mindfuck. But Cartesian thinking came first, originating around 1596, right? Okay. So, the famous saying, I think, therefore I am. Yes. This was coined by Rene Descartes. Descartes. Yes, Rene Descartes. Okay. French philosopher around that time. Yeah. And his thing was doubt. He doubted the existence of everything but himself, which is the only thing that he knew to be true. 
and when he could obtain certain knowledge of something, he marked it off as true and moved on to the next thought. Just systematically went one by one. This systematic inspection of everything in the whole wide universe extended to the topic of God, right? So Descartes was certain his mind existed. That was what he called a finite substance, right? But he needed to know how his mind and thoughts got there. There had to be a source, and it had to be an infinite source that made not just him, but every truth in existence. Okay. All right. Right? So, boom, to him and a lot of other people, the existence of truths in the universe and the ability to discern those truths was sourced solely by the infinite source, which was God. Okay. And the only reason they knew these truths was because God went out of his way to reveal them and allow the mind to recognize them. Yeah, to um, impart that type of self-awareness and wisdom upon humans mm-hmm. as a species. Exactly. Okay. Right. So they're, they're obviously holes. It's the 15th century, but we're not going to get into that. Uh, yeah, when it comes to religious belief, it's, I mean, it's Meh. personal. So the Catholic Church, a.k.a. the institution that ruled everything. Yeah adopted his philosophy and science because it helped them, mm-hmm. right? Scientists at the time actually went about their work with this mindset. They were scientists for God. And, of course, there were scientists that existed around Descartes' time, like Francis Bacon. You know him. Yeah. No, it's just I know as the painter. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> scientists like that, they were like, can we just focus on what's in front of us, what we can observe, like straightforward and down-to-earth thinkers. Mm-hmm. Um, but they weren't popular because peer pressure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, being being shunned for being a non-believer. Shun the non-believer. Shun. Yeah, the Catholic Church carries some weight. Shun. No? Okay. <laughs> so then, you know, entered Laura's generation, right? 1700s. Her contemporary was fucking Sir Isaac Newton. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. All right. For those non-scientists out there, he created the science we know today, actually called Newtonian physics, right? Basically, his three physics laws kind of changed the way we looked at the science. His work was, and we're quoting from encyclopedia.com here because I only pull from the best. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, hey, if it does the job. The description of mechanical events, those that involve forces acting on matter, using the laws of motion and gravity. So basically, that's... That's what Newtonian physics is, is just like, how did this thing move? How did we get there? How would it move if we did this thing, right? Yeah, those those like literal grounding elements of how things are physically dictated. And then you can apply that to, you can apply that to airplanes and chemicals and... Laura, I mean, she was religious. And while Newton was a pious man, the emphasis on analysis derived truths rather than doing science with God as the backbone of it was causing some waves. It was controversial. So when she started rolling towards Newton, her teacher was like, I can't do this anymore. We're not, we're not seeing eye to eye. But science was continuing to move forward, whether people wanted it to or not. New discoveries were starting to book holes in the existence of God. Physics and chemistry was starting to develop theses, theories, scientific laws that question the existence of God. And some scholars weren't having that, like her teacher. In just a mm. hundred years, by the way, Darwin would be rolling up with the theory of evolution. We've got some catching up to do before we get to that point. Right? And I mean, honestly, what is a hundred years in the grand scheme of things? It's like a millisecond in the timeline of the universe. We're all insignificant and anything we do in our lifetime in the long run is pointless. Yeah, yeah, and if you're not sold on that, just Google dark matter. We're literally nothing. 
And like, really, we're do, just, we're nothing. We're do what makes you happy as long as it doesn't hurt the people around you, is all I'm saying. So Laura, a teenage girl partaking in all of this fancy learning, definitely leaked out, even though they didn't want it to. And she was eventually recognized by a man named Prospero Lorenzini Lambertini. Ooh. Ooh. Now, if you happen to be the ghost of my Catholic grandmother or just a very devout <laughs> Italian nana who thinks I'm too skinny and needs to eat more, you will recognize this name. Your face right now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what? I don't recognize that name. For the rest of us heathens, this would be Pope Benedict the Fourteenth. Oh, okay. Yeah, I've heard of one of them. One of those. There's like a whole collection of the Benedict Popes. <laughs> His uh, papacy began in seven t- 1740, and I'm going to refer to him as Pope Benny from here on out. I approve. Pope Benny was a damn scholar. Right. Okay, for a hot second, it almost sounded like you said a dance scholar, and I was like, that took a turn. <laughs> I was not expecting. <laughs> Spirit fingers. Point your toes. <laughs> Yo, he's got the outfit for it. I mean, talk about fabulous. <laughs> the hat might be a little hard to quickly maneuver it in, but you can make that work. You just have to, like, pin it. Like, really pin it so down. So many pins. But it's a Catholic <laughs> church, so those motherfuckers would be, like, encrusted with rubies and diamonds. <laughs> okay, so I'm sorry. He was not a dance scholar. What type of scholar was he? I called him a damn scholar, uh, but he was just a scholar. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Dude was all about promoting scientific learning and Baroque arts. He was published several times, reduced taxes, started museums, did not incite violence towards secular individuals, was just generally a nice guy. Okay, yeah, no, he sounds pretty solid. You know? (laughs) I mean, in the grand scheme of history, there have been some bastard popes. Oh, yeah. We don't like to talk about that. I know. So fun. No bueno. When he noticed her, this was actually uh, before his papacy. He was okay. he was Archbishop of Bologna at the time. He basically saw a woman who was a prodigy in childhood, and he became her patron. That's impressive. That is super impressive. Right? Like, he may not have been Pope at the time, but let's be honest here. <laughs> She's golden from here on out. Yeah. <laughs> So he honestly went up, went about setting up a public debate between her and four professors from the University of Bologna and was like, do what you do best. Are you okay? I'm just, I'm sorry. I'm just imagining him like, this poor girl is like, okay, I'm going to be talking to some distinguished scholars in the, the whole region. And... And meanwhile, I'm just imagining Benny being like, yo, she's going to fucking talk so much shit. These motherfuckers going down. (laughs) He was almost like (laughs) all about it. Like this is going to be like a public like boxing match or something. And he's like the coach hyping her up. I mean, okay, let's be honest here. Like that's what you do when you create a thesis for a doctorate, right? You stand in front of a panel of a bunch of professors and you defend what you have spent two years writing. They ask you questions. They go back and forth. Like, that's part of it, right? So yes. that's what she did. She 
at the age of 20, simultaneously defends her 49-page-long thesis to these panel of professors. She's like, this is what I know about chemistry, physics, hydraulics, mathematics, mechanics. Come at me. I can take it. And she earns her doctorate degrees in science and philosophy in public. When I was 20, I was sculpting um, phallic-looking gourds. <laughs> um, when I was 20, I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> Every now and again, your Skype screen like jumps a little bit, like it unintentionally zooms in, and it does that at the perfect moment that you just had this dead silence of introspection, and then it jumped, and you're like, "I want to talk about it." Like, is there not like a like cinematic dramatic zoom in option on Skype that I am unaware of? Because that was impressive. Oh my god, that's amazing. Yeah, no, that's that's what she did at twenty. I'm going to drink some more. Yeah, meanwhile, we were just being stupid 20-year-olds trying to figure out our life. Still don't have it down, but it's fine. You're closer. But we're both moving forward, and we're making progress, and that is what matters. But all right, so back to this 20-year-old who's fucking (laughs) killing it and has uh, two, three, four doctoral degrees that I don't... Just two. Oh, sorry, just Um, two. And this is actually huge, not just because she was 20, but... uh, because these degrees changed history. Oh, okay. Yeah, in what respect? She was the second woman ever to earn a doctorate in philosophy and okay. the first woman to earn a doctorate in science in the entire world. Oh, <laughs> okay. All right. Yep. Yep. And then she is quickly elected into the Academy of Sciences of the Institute of Bologna that same year. And she's the first woman to get that, too. I mean, you might as well just keep the ball yeah. rolling. Oh. Oh. oh, And there was also a petition to teach at the university. The Senate, for that one, deliberated from that thesis defense up until October of that year. She was then appointed okay. professor of philosophy. And this made her the first salaried woman lecturer in the world. I just... So I don't remember the scientist's exact name that you covered a, a while ago. And she just wanted to teach at Harvard in the early 20th century. Oh, I can't remember. And, but they kept knocking her down. Yeah, but Harvard were just dicks about it. And we're like, no, you can't be a professor. No, you can't be a professor. No. Everyone else was like, just let her be a fucking professor. <laughs> like, she's fine. She's good. <laughs> and it's just so shitty that... How many hundreds of years later? And you're like, it's already been done. Someone's already got exactly. Yeah, like, what are you? What are you? What's the problem? Why are we still going through this? Fucking 1700s. Just throwing that out there. So she gets these banging historical landmarks under her belt, and she earns respect. She is referred to as the Bolognese Minerva. Bolognese Minerva. Which is, by the way, a reference to the Roman goddess of wisdom and strategic warfare. Can I just say that it fascinates me that people who were demonstratively and devoutly Catholic were willing to offer their respect to a woman by comparing her to a Greek goddess. The whole false idols things. Anyone? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. (laughs) Just putting that baggage over here. Around 1938, she marries a dude named... Giovanni Giuseppe Verratti. Wait, wait, you said 1938. 1738. She's not 300 years old. 1738. <laughs> she marries that dude. 
he's a physician and a professor, specifically a teaching assistant at the university that she's teaching at. Okay. He's a teaching assistant for a physics professor named Paolo Balbi, right? And she has 12 children with this dude. 12. Holy moly. And we thought seven children was a big family. I know. Oh, I know. Five of them survived into adulthood, which sucks that only five of them did. Uh, well. Um, only one became a scientist? 1700s. Two scientist parents, only one of them became a scientist. The other ones went into the church. I don't know. That sounds like they might have tried to science a little too hard. I, yeah, I have a feeling that they were like... And the kids were like, I, I literally need Jesus. I- <laughs> I'm sorry, but <laughs> I mean, no, it just come in. Wait for it, right? So there's a quote from our dear Laura, right? It is, "I've chosen a person who walks the same path of learning, and who, from long experience, I was certain would not dissuade me from it." Honestly, Laura, don't at me. This is my idea of a real, like a real romance, like straight up, just like a dude that's like, yeah. You you go you go be a doctor. You do you boo. Yeah, that's like actually supportive and is not gonna make you practice your studies in secret or you know belittle you exactly. for it. Exactly. Like he was just like, yeah, I am not at all, not one bit. What's the word I'm looking for? Threatened by you. Hmm. You are sexy. You are smart, and you're gonna change the world. And she did. She did. She did. Before she met him. <laughs> right? So she's a teacher, right? But she's still a woman, and mm-hmm. her rights as a teacher were restricted compared to men. Okay. Yeah, so she didn't have, like, essentially full mm-hmm. rights yeah. within that position. Okay. For example, she was allowed to give exactly one formal dissertation a year for about 30 years. Like, formal okay. public. I- like, stand up and lecture publicly. It was really taboo, even though that's how she got her doctorate. What was normal? So she did it at home. Wait, no, like, so you say it was once every year, but, like, were, like, male professors doing that, like, all yeah, the time? Yeah, or yeah, they were just doing, like, full of public lectures oh, okay. and different things. Yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah, so it, w- it was just more frequent for men to do it, but, you know, she was only allowed once a year. Okay, so got to make sure it's a really good topic you're super passionate exactly. about. Um, and she, I mean, yeah. she covered everything. This woman was a genius. And she's like, eh, this year I'll do electricity. It's the 1700s. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. I want to see that demonstration. Yeah. <laughs> she's like, yo, guys, I have got a lemon and some pieces of copper, and I'm about to blow your fucking mind. <laughs> <It's> fucking great. <laughs> I'd be like, oh, my God, do the potato next. Please, please. <laughs> I just think it's funny that she did it publicly. She got her doctorates publicly, but she wasn't allowed to do, I don't know. It was just, there was so much hypocrisy yeah, and so no, much they, red tape. Uh, but people did support her. I mean, there was like another thing. She was told she was a public figure. So she was expected to attend social university events because she was a woman. She was a face. But they did allow her to teach often at home. They gave her funding for experiments to do at home, right? That, that's just such a weird dichotomy of yeah. like... Like, what's the problem? Hey, we have some funders coming to the college. We got to... Can you show up at the banquet? Also, how's the studying you're doing at exactly. home by the yourself? Lecture. Yeah. How are the experiments you're doing at home by yourself? How are the private lectures? Like, what is the difference? Why can't... I can't. I don't know. I, I don't yeah. know. But they also raised her salary when she fought for it. Oh, okay. Not only did they give it to her, this made her earnings at the highest pay rate the university offered at the time. That is super like, impressive. What? What are that? Like, what? What? 
I don't, it's so confusing, but so wonderful for her. Like, how is this happening? I wonder if a bit of it is like guilt money. I don't, oh God. They just wanted to keep her to like chill out. I don't know. But she was essentially a work-at-home mama. She was raising her kids and working at the same time. I mean, that that's a hard gig right now, pandemic or I know, not. right? She's lecturing from home. She does, She was doing experiments with her husband. So they were together doing experience at home. It was so, I guess it was a pretty sweet gig. Uh, and these, yeah. again, these experiments were Newtonian and they were like focused primarily on electricity. But again, she covered everything. But then mm-hmm. 1772 rolls around. Okay. Balby passes away and there's a vacancy. The physics professor that I told you about earlier. Okay. Laura petitions for the job. She's like, I got this. She's 61, by the way. Mm-hmm. Four years later, she is then appointed chair of experimental physics at the university. Again, the first woman to earn that title. And the cherry on top? Yes. Uh, a bonus? Nay, nay. This now makes her husband her teaching assistant, literally making her his boss. Okay. <laughs> I mean, see, I like the fact that today we can be like, yeah, that's cool. But like, 1700. What? Seven, that is huge. And he's like, yeah, this is, this is fucking great. Awesome. My wife's a genius. <laughs> oh, Best love story ever. Best. Sadly, this only goes on for about two years. Okay, yeah, because she's in her 60s in the 1700s. I mean, I don't know what life expectancy is like, but I imagine if you get over the age of 35 and you're, that's old. With all the children she had and the pregnancy problems she had between those children, like. All 12 uh of them, yeah. She was going through some shit. Like, her health was not the greatest. So she was fragile and then she suffered a heart attack. February 20th, 1778, and she passed away. But Mm -hmm. she made science her lifelong career in the 1700s. Like, are you kidding me? And was raising a family while she was doing it. I mean... Did it all. Yeah, I just like, I just had one kid. Why not have 11 more? (laughs) That wasn't so bad. (laughs) Yeah, by the sixth one, you're like, I don't even have to think about it. I'm technically grading papers right now. (laughs) I mean, her first kid was, I don't even remember. I don't even know. I don't even know when her first kid is. But she, like, had her first kid, I'm sure, around when she was 25, right? So imagine how many she had to pop out. Her last one was probably when she was technically in her geriatric pregnancy phase. You hit geriatric pregnancy, I think, 35? Yeah. She was a geriatric mother, technically, in the 1700s. Okay, yeah, but did she, like, maybe have a few, like, twins or, like, triplets? I was like, that was easy. I would still say, like, even with that math, like, she definitely got past 35. I couldn't imagine what the the, the age for the 1700s geriatric pregnancy. That would be 25. Yeah. Even younger. Like, yeah. <laughs> what? What do you mean you're 16 years old and you haven't had a child? You are a bear. What is happening? You bring dishonor to your family, your country. <laughs> Your city. Why would Uh, you bring baloney down like this? (laughs) (laughs) Why would you disrespect it in that manner? We're going to have to put up like a disclaimer. (laughs) It it is baloney. That is. We cannot afford to isolate any other potential viewers or listeners. I'm sorry. Bologna. 
Balagna, please, for the love of God, tell me how to pronounce it. I'm not even going to try it because that's that's one of those words that like I have read. <laughs> I've never said. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm sure it's a beautiful city, guys. I just don't know how to say it because I am a fucking American. Anyway, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. Oh, I, I like it. I, I think that's fun. I haven't really hit up the Renaissance on my end because there's so much mm. reading to do. But yeah, that is a really kind of fun period. And Italy in particular is such a, um, you know, in terms of science and the art, such a creatively rich Look, region. The last time I hit up the 1700s Italy, I'm pretty sure I was talking to you about Aqua Tofana. Giulia Tofana. She was murdering people. It was great. See, that was one of our murder episodes. <laughs> That was like our only murder episode. No, you had a murder episode. What was my murder episode? Dollhouse. Oh, yeah, but she didn't do any of the murdering. Fair. She just investigated it in a secondary manner. We need to feature more murderers. Maybe not. No, we have to follow (laughs) Bailey Sarian's wise words. Get better idols. (laughs) We have to do it like her. Get better idols. I love her. She's wonderful. Anyway. (laughs) As always, <laughs> if you guys have made it this far, you're really awesome, and we really appreciate it. We love and you. And Milana, if people want to find out more about the people that we've covered and to see the graphic novel I mentioned and to figure out how to direct pronunciation corrections to us, please, where can they go? Please correct us. We do not know anything. We have a website. MyFavoriteFeminist.com. Our Facebook and Instagram are both under My Favorite Feminist. Our Twitter is at Milena Megan. That's at M I L E N A M E G A N. We have an email. Please, if you need to let us know about my horrible pronunciation, let us know at info at MyFavoriteFeminist.com. You can listen to us anywhere you can hear a podcast. So, any of those major platforms, you know this because you're listening to us. And it takes two seconds to like, subscribe, share, and comment. Let us know in any of our comment sections. What would you write a graphic novel about? Oh, that's a good question. Okay. I think it would be tempting to write a graphic novel, maybe more for kids, about the adventures of someone with their baby blanket. Yes. I know. I want to say for like a younger audience, I mean like 20 year olds and people who are just turning 30 like me who still have their baby blanket. I don't care. I'm not sorry. I have nothing to apologize for. You you have nothing to apologize for. I still have my baby tiger. Yeah. So I think maybe it'd be like adventures with my baby blanket. But as a millennial navigating being an adult and being in crippling debt and not being able to buy a house. And not being able to afford avocados for my avocado toast that I'm apparently spending too much money on. And if I had just stopped doing that, I'd have all the money in the world and suddenly I'd be able to live like a boomer. But with my baby blanket. Do you need a hug? <laughs> no, it's all right. It's fine. I'll buy a house one day. <laughs> I won't. <laughs> <laughs> so what about you? Well, I once had the idea of creating a, um, a graphic novel about the life of like the veterinary world. But then throwing a twist where the main character had powers where they could actually speak to the animals. Okay. That's never going to happen. I don't know how to draw. Yeah. Well, you employ someone else for you. That's fair. That's not me. Don't look at me. I'm not an illustrator. I also thought about maybe making a TV show that based around like the kind of characters at my studio and like how we kind of like bring each other up 
and the shittiest of times. And like the personalities that you meet at the dance studio. They're so, everybody's so colorful. You say dance studio. I just want to clarify. It is for like aerials and pole dancing and doing dippy things while you're in like stiletto heels. It is a very specialized dance studio slash fitness studio. And? (laughs) No, I'm just pointing it out because I feel like it is, it's a, like, the type of person who is at your dance studio is not necessarily going to be someone who's, like, at Planet Fitness. It's a different type of person. Oh, it's definitely a different type of person. Anyway. As always, we super appreciate it. So, until next time, we'll see you later. Show us the way to Candy Mountain. To Candy Mountain. Candy Mountain, Charlie. Candy Mountain.